Thank you. Hey, good morning, Transit family. How's everyone doing today? We good? Awesome, awesome. Um, well, thank you for that. That was not planned. I did not ask the kids ministry director to do that. Uh, and so thank you for, that was just, uh, it's been a, some of you know, it's been a rough week for our family. I won't go into details, but it's just uh, such a blessing to have such an amazing uh, family uh, of believers here at the Transit. And we, uh, if the intent was to make us feel uh, appreciated and loved, job well done. That was awesome and a surprise to me. So thank you. Uh, today I am not preaching. We have a special treat. Uh, Joshua, Pastor Joshua Young from Clarksville, Tennessee with Redeeming Hope is going to be bringing the fire. Uh, raise your hand if you know Josh Young. Everyone, was everyone here in May? Some of you all. Okay, so in May, Josh Young is a good friend of mine. And the way that we got connected as a church was that um, although our church is non-denominational church, we are affiliated with the Acts 29 Church Planning Network which means that 10% of all of your tithes and offerings that comes in, we give 10% back to church planters and church planting to fund the war effort for the kingdom of God to advance through church plants. And Joshua Young is someone that we give, you give, through us, monthly support to, uh, to Redeeming Hope in Clarksville, Tennessee. And so far, since they planted in 2017, Josh Young and his team have led over 40 people to faith in Jesus Christ, which is phenomenal, yeah. And so in May, Josh Young was here, and he helped lead a evangelism workshop for our church all day Saturday, and then came and preached on evangelism on, I believe, May 8th of this year. And since then, our church, we have seen such, um, I don't know how to say it, it's like, it's like our, our hearts were there. We're saying, Lord, would you just train and equip us? And he's like, I'm going to send Josh Young to you. And then it was like kerosene was thrown on this thing. And then now we're, uh, you might be asking, if you've been here since, I think, uh, since May, you'd be like, hey, I didn't know that your church did these monthly uh, prayer outreaches where you go walk the community and to engage in spiritual conversations with people, share the gospel, pray for them. And uh, if you want to know whose fault that is, it's Josh Young's fault. So he started that for us. Um, and uh, obviously it was the Lord who orchestrated it. And we've seen... Uh, even this last week when we went out after church and prayed, we, we saw some divine appointments and people powerfully touched uh, by uh, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, getting to pray with people and share the gospel. It's just been absolutely incredible. So I love Josh. He's a dear friend of mine. Um, he just got back from Africa. He was in Togo and Congo uh, teaching pastors over there, uh, training them on discipleship. Uh, in addition to that, uh, he is happily married and recently, I think in the past few months, became a father, which is exciting. Put your hands together for that. And um, I already know Josh is going to be a great dad. He's a great dad. Um, and in addition to that, he is a church planning coach and also a counselor with HeartSong Counseling. And in my phone calls, just catching up with Josh, uh, counselor is not just like a title, a hat he wears. It's who he is. And so if you're here today, we actually partner with HeartSong Counseling locally. And um, if you're here today and wrestling with something that you want counseling for, good biblical counseling, I would uh, unabashedly encourage you to connect with Josh Young today, reach out to him, and it'll be well worth your time to get an appointment scheduled with him. So without further ado, Josh didn't pay me to say any of that, but without further ado, let's put our hands together and give Josh Young a transit family welcome. Love this guy. Well, Transit Church, it's good to see you guys again. I've been hearing you've been getting into some good trouble with evangelism, and that's awesome to hear. I'm so glad. Um, I, you know, just as we begin, you know, your pastor is, is, is just a dear friend. He really is. And, um, you know, it's so interesting because we uh, live in Clarksville, Tennessee, and we're planting a church. There you go. All right. Somebody's from Clarksville. I love it. That's great. By the way, would you like to move to Clarksville and help plant a church? Because come talk to me afterwards. We could use some people. Um, but, uh, 
uh, you know, this idea of, of, of we're planting churches, reaching military people. And we know that you guys have a wide variety of military people here in your church and in your community. And so um, just through that kindred spirit and just as friends, uh, Nick is just such a gift to me as a friend, as a partner, and I just feel like our churches are kindred spirits as well. So I come on behalf of Redeeming Hope. I've been gone for four weeks in Africa teaching both in the Congo as well as in Togo, and I have a co-lead pastor as well who planted a church in upstate New York who is now partnering with me in Clarksville. And so when I said, hey, you know, I'm going back to Maryland. Is it okay that I spend another weekend away? Um, he was just saying, yes, please go do this. And so our church in Clarksville um, says hey to you guys. And uh, like I said, we just, we love you guys so much. And, and not only this, but you guys, um, uh, Nick was so gracious to, to do a one-off. You guys have been in the sermon series I've heard on Nehemiah. And so he's so gracious to let me come in and do a one-off sermon about this idea of following Jesus. And so last time I was here, we talked about evangelism. This time we're talking about discipleship. And really this idea and the question that I want us to answer today is how do we follow Jesus and what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus? And so with that, I'm going to invite us to turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be there um, for this morning, Mark chapter 8. And so um, I went over to Africa a month ago to teach a couple of different classes. One of those classes was on discipleship. So I spent two weeks teaching a Bible college class on what discipleship is. And so this topic is kind of pertinent because it's kind of been ruminating with me as I've been over there teaching, kind of uh, walking other pastors through this idea. And to begin our time today, I want to share a story about discipleship. And it starts with my four-year-old niece, okay? So I'm actually, they don't know I'm in town. I came by like, like last two nights ago, and they don't know I'm here. And right after this, I'm going to go to Maryland and surprise them at my nephew's baseball game. So I'm like, I told, I told my, my uh, wife's sister, Carol, I said, Carol, don't tell them I'm in town, and I'm just going to show up to my, my nephew, George, he's seven, and my, my niece, Lydia, is four. So I said, don't tell them I'm in town. I'm just going to show up to the baseball game and surprise them here after I, I spend some time with you guys. <clears throat> so what's interesting about Lydia is this, okay? She loves to go shopping at not Target, but Target. She wants to go to Target, okay? So she goes to Target, and she gets one of those little carts, okay? And she pushes this little cart around Target. And what's so cute is if you go with my niece, she'll go up and, you know, if you're in the beauty section, right, she'll go grab something that she can reach as a four-year-old. And what she'll do is she'll look at it and she'll kind of turn it around and act like she's reading the label. She can't read, okay? She cannot read yet. But she's acting like she's reading the label. And sometimes she'll put it in her cart and sometimes she'll put it back. And then she'll go to the little kid's uh, dress section and she'll like reach up and, and grab something and she'll just hold it to her chest. Okay, she doesn't like look and see if it'll fit, but she just holds it to her chest and then she'll either put it back or she'll put it in her cart. Now, who do you think, I'm just going to give you, this is, a, this is an audio daily double, okay, for my Jeopardy friends. Who do you think she's emulating? Her mom, absolutely. And I love Carol to death. She loves to go shopping, all right? So she sees her mother looking at things, and she doesn't know that she's reading a label. She just sees that she's looking at it. And so she emulates her mom. She doesn't know that her mom's holding stuff to her to see if it might fit. She just does what her mom does, all right? 
And my friends, this is what discipleship is. It's emulating someone else. And so I want us to talk and define discipleship maybe a little differently than what we've done in the past. You see, I think when most people within the context of a church hear discipleship, we automatically assume it's Christian. But my argument is that the technical definition of discipleship is neutral. It's neither Christian or not Christian. It literally means to follow someone. A disciple is one who follows another. And discipleship is helping someone follow another. And I think it's important that we define this term neutrally because I think that sometimes we might be discipling people not to follow Jesus, but maybe discipling people in other things. And maybe in our culture around us, our culture is trying to disciple us as well. And that's what I kind of want to introduce us to the idea that maybe the culture around us is trying to disciple us in a way that is not following Jesus. And that as a church and as Christians and as followers of Jesus, we actually need to be very specific about discipling people to follow Jesus and not follow a way of teaching, a theology, a church, a pastor. But we actually need to be helping people follow Jesus. And so, because I said this is not inherently a Christian term, I, I, I just want to give you two examples of maybe some other ways that we can be discipled in this world, okay? And the first way is just kind of a general term of following in the way of success. Now, I think maybe all of you, if you've worked, you know, of course, you work in D.C. or Virginia, um, you, you've ever had a boss, and you have ever had people that like their boss, and all of a sudden they begin to dress like their boss, you know what I'm talking about? And they begin to talk like their boss, and they begin to have the mannerisms, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about. Does, does this resonate? Okay, that's exactly what I think the world is trying to get us to do. And I was thinking about this. You know, we see on TikTok and YouTube and Facegram and Instabook or whatever we call it, right? Um, I like to act like an 80-year-old man sometimes, and it gives me great joy, okay? I'd be up here in white Nikes if I could. Um, <laughs> But the idea is that you see these people, and they're called influencers, right? You heard the term. And so there's people, and I also heard the term crypto bro, which I think is hilarious, all right? But you see, there's a certain way that people dress, right? There's a certain way that people present themselves. There's a certain language that they use. There's a certain mannerisms that they use. And all of a sudden, you can go out in D.C. on a weekend, and you can see the guys that are emulating the crypto bros. You can see the people that are emulating this wealthy success culture. And I would say that that's discipleship. That's helping someone follow in the way of someone else. And so I think that we can sometimes follow success or follow successful people and make that our king, make that the thing that we center our lives around and begin to emulate and encircle our life around this idea of success or emulating wealthy or successful people. Another way that we can do this and it's called, it's, it's around the family, right? So you think about certain people, again, people online, influencers that have this perfect family, right? And their kids online look so obedient and perfect. 
and put together, and you see the moms that make all, you know, the uh, moms that make all the bento boxes for their kids for lunch, and it's like everything is cut perfectly, and it's like you're feeding these kids all these really healthy things. And all of a sudden, you see this, like, you get what I'm saying. It's like a whole world that people begin to live in, and then all of a sudden, we try to emulate, and we try to grasp at that type of lifestyle. So we can make this pursuit of having a perfect family, a perfect marriage, um, having the perfect nutrition for your children, right? This idea of we can make that the center of our life and king and follow in that way. And what I'd like to introduce to us is the idea of Jesus-centric discipleship, where we actually begin to purposefully, intentionally not center our life around the ways of the world, but we begin to center our life on Jesus. And as we're committed to a church family of other people that are following Jesus, that we begin to live differently. We become formed. It's this idea of formation. We begin to be formed around the person and the work of Jesus. And then we have a community of people around us that are also doing the same thing and reinforcing this idea that we want to center our lives. We want to be followers. We want to be disciples of Jesus, making him king and Lord over our life. And I would say that discipleship, as we help others follow Jesus, our action in discipleship is taking a step closer to Jesus. This means that every day, every action, we can be a disciple. We can take another step closer to Jesus. So like Lydia, my niece, shopping at Target, she's basing her desires and her mannerisms and her reflexes off of her mom. I would say that, that we want to do that about Jesus. We want to base our desires and our mannerisms, our reflexes, where we're going in this world, off of Jesus. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we reject where the world wants to disciple us? And how do we embrace a Jesus-centered life? How do we begin to look like him? So I'd say that there's, there's three things. There's three points for our sermon today coming out of Mark 8. First is following Jesus the Christ. The second point is following Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again. And the third is following Jesus from death into resurrection. So that's what we're going to see in Mark 8. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about the theology of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and then towards the end, I'm going to incorporate some maybe practical suggestions on ways that your life can change and be formed around Jesus. So the practical stuff is going to come towards the end as we look a little bit about who Jesus says he is and what he says he did for us. And so with that, that's Mark 8, starting in verse 27, and the text should also be on your screen as well. Really, the idea is following Jesus the Christ. The question that we have to answer with this point is who are we following? Who are we choosing to follow? And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So Jesus is on the way up to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is set on a hill, okay? And how rabbis would walk in the first century is a rabbi would walk, and their disciples would follow behind them. And as a rabbi would walk and teach from town to town, he would frequently turn and teach 
his disciples who were walking behind him as a symbol of respect, as actually a symbol of what they were doing. They were following in the way or the teaching of that rabbi, and then they would symbolically walk behind him and then listen to him as he would teach. So this was something that was very common for Jesus to do. As he's walking from town to town, he would be teaching his disciples, spending time with them, investing with them, building a relationship with them and a friendship with them, and then would teach them about who he is. So he's walking up. I want you to just get a picture of like a city kind of on a hill, and he's walking up towards this city, and he kind of turns back to his disciples, and he's asking them a teaching question. He's saying, who do people say that I am? And their answer is very interesting because they say three things. The first is John the Baptist. Now, this was a modern prophet. He was someone that had just recently died, and he was a healer. He was someone that everybody would have known. He was a forerunner of Jesus, but, but he was a modern prophet, okay? And people saw that and identified that and loved John the Baptist. So they're like, okay, maybe Jesus is John the Baptist. And then other people said he's like Elijah. Now, Elijah was one of the most famous and powerful of Israel's ancient prophets, Okay, so he's another venerable man that they would have respected and they saw just had incredible amounts of power to overthrow the enemies of God, right? So again, this is a, this is a, a position of honor if they would compare Jesus to Elijah. And, and he might be like one of the prophets of old, bringing this ancient wisdom. So, so it's clear that the crowds think there's something special about Jesus, that he's an important figure. But what we also see from this is that they have no idea about Jesus' true identity. All right, so they, they're confused about who Jesus is. They know he's important. The crowds around Jesus know who he is. He's somebody, but they don't really know who he truly is. And so then Jesus turns the question to his disciples. And he says, all right, well, who do you say that I am? Because obviously the crowd's answer is not sufficient. And then, of course, we have Peter with this very bold statement, and he says, you are the Christ. Now, this word Christ is not just Jesus' last name, okay? It's actually a title. And it literally means the Messiah or the promised one. And you see, throughout Israel's history, there has been an anticipation that a Savior would come and set the world right again. And so that they're waiting for this. And in the first century, there is Roman oppression over the nation of Israel. And so they're taxing them and they're abusing them. And so they are waiting for a Savior. They're waiting for a Messiah, someone to save them. And really, I think what we're going to see here in a few minutes is that Peter really wanted Jesus to save them from the Romans. He really wanted to save them from their oppression. But Peter does hit the nail on the head. This is the promised Messiah, the promised Savior. He is the Christ. This is very interesting that Jesus asks this and then affirms this because he's making a stark comparison. He is not simply a prophet. He is God himself. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is making it extremely clear he's not just a prophet, but he is God himself. And the book of Colossians helps give us an understanding of a little bit more expansion on who Jesus actually is as he is standing in front of these disciples walking up to Caesarea Philippi. This is what Colossians says, who Jesus is. It says, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now this is the Christ. This is who is standing in front of Peter. This is who is walking on the road up to Caesarea Philippi, teaching his disciples about who he is. He is the image of God. He created the world. And he created the world with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. And he holds the world together. And he holds the universe together. And he holds the church together. And he is the fullness of God, which means if you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. That is what this is saying. And that is who is standing in front of Peter asking these questions. And my friends, I think it's important for us to understand as we think about discipleship, as we think about following Jesus, who is Jesus? This is who he is. He holds the universe together. He holds your life together. He holds the church together. And he loves you. And he's present with you, just like he's present with the disciples. He was walking with them. So this is a God who is sovereign over the universe, yet also incarnated, came into the world to walk with these knucklehead teenagers that have no clue what he's doing. They are completely confused, all right? And yet he loves them, and he cares for them, and he teaches them. And my friends, this is the heart of Christ for you today. He loves you. He's sovereign. He holds the universe together. But he also loves you, and he's present with you, and he's for you. He's not just for the universe. He is for the universe. But he's also for you, and he's present with you. And you see, we follow the God of the universe who became flesh and bone the one way back to God, the singular Savior of the entire human race, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our Savior. So this is who we follow. We follow Jesus the Christ. Secondly, we see we follow Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again. So the question is, is where was Jesus going? He's telling his disciples, come follow me, right? He's inviting you and me. He's saying, come follow me. Well, where is Jesus going? All right, we kind of need to know that. It'd be kind of important. So look with me at Mark 8, verse 30. So, by the way, when, when they say this, he's the Savior, Jesus says these words, which are very strange. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, all right, okay, hold on a second here. He says he's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's come to save Israel and the world and set the world right again. And immediately, Peter affirms this, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, don't tell anyone? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Why would he say this? Why would he say don't tell anyone? This is so confusing until we understand the purpose of Jesus. My friends, Jesus had a better plan for when he would be revealed as the Messiah and as the Christ. Now, as we're reading the book of Mark, if you go to Mark 1.1, like the very, very first verse in Mark, it says this is the gospel about Jesus the Christ who is God. Okay? So, like, Mark gives us the answer to the test before we even open the book. All right? He tells us who Jesus is before we get to Mark 8. And there's a tension that Mark is building in this gospel 
but when are we going to know that Jesus is the Christ? We know it, but when are the disciples going to know it? So it's like we've got the information. It's like you're watching a movie, and you know the end, right? It's in reverse order, and you're like waiting for the people in the movie to figure out the plot, right? And we know it. So this is what Mark does for us in the book of Mark. He tells us literally verse 1, Jesus is the Christ. He's the long-awaited Messiah, and we're waiting for the disciples to get there, to catch up. So now we see in Mark 8, they've caught it. Peter's like, you're the Christ. And we're like, okay, great. Uh, let's tell everybody. And no, don't tell anyone. Why? Because Jesus chooses to reveal himself publicly as the Christ in a way that none of us would have ever anticipated. So I want you to fast forward. And remember, they're walking up to Caesarea Philippi. And he says, you're the Christ. And then Jesus says, well, don't tell anybody. Now fast forward a few months later. It's the middle of the night. Jesus is in chains. And at a secret trial, in the middle of the night, being falsely accused of heresy, he's being beaten. He's on the eve of his death. He's bleeding. He's bloody. It's the middle of the night. They're falsely accusing him. They're setting up a mock trial. And the next day, he is going to be murdered by the Roman government. And this is what happens. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In chains, blindfolded at a false secret trial in the middle of the night, in front of his accusers who were lying about him, the God of the universe willingly submits to these chains. He is preparing for his final suffering and death at the hands of the Romans who are already persecuting the Jewish people. And that's when he publicly declares that he is the Messiah. Would we have ever chose to do that? Absolutely not. But Jesus does. In, this, in the moment of his greatest weakness... He is saying that he is the Messiah that's coming to save the world. Because it's not just about Jesus' victory, it's also about his substitution. And that's what we're talking about here. His greatest victory, his greatest work for you and me is to be our substitute into death, into weakness. This is not the Savior the Jews were looking for. This is a Savior in weakness, not strength. In submission, not power. In persecution, not authority. And we would never have chosen it this way because this, my friends, is what marks Jesus. This is where Jesus is going as he's walking up to Caesarea Philippi. He's going into suffering and weakness and death. And then we see it back a couple months earlier, back to the road up to Caesarea Philippi, the dusty road where he's teaching his disciples. He then teaches them he says, don't tell anyone. And then he teaches them what is going to happen. He says he's going to suffer immensely. He says he's going to be rejected categorically by all the religious leaders and all the people. And it's directly juxtaposed to the idea that Jesus is the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited one. And guess what? Nobody's going to believe it. Everybody's going to reject me. The scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees, they're all going to reject Jesus as the Messiah. He will not be recognized as the Christ. So he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to die. 
And this is where it would make absolutely no sense to any of the disciples, and especially Peter. How can a Savior save the people if he's dead? How can a Savior lead the people out of Roman oppression if he's in a grave? And Jesus says he's going to die. And Peter, especially, who wanted to overthrow the Roman government, he would not have understood this at all. And then Jesus says this, and he says this multiple times. He says, and then I'm going to rise again. But it's kind of like the disciples never hear that part. It's very strange to me. It's, like, it's almost like they're surprised when Jesus comes back after three days. It's like Jesus over and over and over again says, I am going to rise again after three days. And the disciples seem like they completely gloss over that. There's this focus on, hey, wait, you said you're going to die, but you can't die. You're, you're our Messiah. You're our teacher. You're our Savior. You're the Christ. You're our rabbi. You can't do this. He's like, no, 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 guys, I'm coming back. Like, wait, three days. But it's like, they don't even, it's like they don't even register that. So we have to look at where Jesus was going. He wasn't going to a position of power. He was rather going to a position of weakness and submission, willingly submitting to injustice, knowing that it was going to be for our good. And he's not just the victor, but he's also our substitute. And this is important for us to understand in the work of Christ. And this says something about us. This says something about discipleship. You see, we follow Jesus, who as God consciously knew he was going to be rejected, who willingly walked into suffering and death, and then who victoriously defeated death to bring us to himself, to bring us back to his Father, to indwell us with his Holy Spirit, and to create a new family of God. But this is how Jesus does it. He does it through suffering, and he does it through death. And then he experiences resurrection. And I think this says something about how we are called to follow Jesus, which leads us to the third point, is that following Jesus from death into resurrection. So where are we going when we follow Jesus? Where are we going when we follow Jesus? So we see Peter, who had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He cannot believe this. He can't believe that Jesus is going to die. And he wants Jesus, like we said, to save them from the Romans. He doesn't want his Savior to die, and so this is what Peter does. Remember, they're walking up. The disciples are supposed to be behind Jesus, walking up to Caesarea Philippi, and this is what happens in Mark 8, 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So what does Peter have to do in order to take Jesus aside? He has to walk up next to him, doesn't he? He has to leave the posture of a disciple and come up to Jesus as an equal. And he, I can just picture him grabbing his arm and pulling him aside. Like, you can't say this. You can't do this. Why are you saying this? You're our Savior. You're the Messiah. We'll die for you. He's supposed to be following behind. But he walks up next to him and tries to correct him. Why? And this is really weird because, again, remember, just two verses before, like a couple seconds before this happened, he literally says he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's God incarnate. So wait a minute. All of a sudden, two seconds ago, you said this is God incarnate, and now you're telling him what he said was wrong? Where does the switch happen with Peter? And this is what I think. I think that Peter's scared. I think he's scared to death that his Messiah, that this Christ would die. And he cannot wrap his brain around this. I think fear is driving this interaction with Jesus. See, Peter wants the win. 
and suffering and rejection and death does not look like winning to Peter. And in his anger, in his desire to see his version of God's kingdom come, he pulls Jesus aside. It's almost like he forgets that he's God incarnate standing in front of him. And he becomes fearful and he seeks to rebuke his master. Now, I think it's easy 2,000 years later to judge Peter, but my question is, isn't Peter's blindness our own sometimes? See, I have difficulty trusting God when I suffer. I have difficulty when I see my life is not working out the way that I want it to. How can God be good and these things happen to me? I struggle to see how suffering is producing something beautiful in my life. And oftentimes I I don't see it at first, and sometimes I might not see it at all in this life. And I often doubt God's goodness, and I think at some juncture we all do too. And so a couple questions I have as we consider following Jesus is, are we comfortable following a God who suffers? who suffered for us? Can we be comfortable following a God who willingly submitted to the authority of his oppressors in order that we might be saved? Are we comfortable with identifying with God's suffering and seeing our own pain as a mechanism of his will and even his grace towards us and others? And are we seeking to use Jesus as a political or social or religious tool to bring in our own kingdom Or do we follow him as truly God and truly our king and truly our Lord, trusting him, no matter where he might take us or what he might do? You see, we don't naturally want to follow Jesus into the death of our own will. We don't naturally want to do that. But that is exactly what he's calling us to do. And after Jesus rebukes Peter for saying this, it says he turns to the crowd, he calls to them, And he says these words in Mark 8, verse 34. He says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? My friends, the call of Jesus is for us to come after him, to follow in his way, to go where he's going, and to follow behind him. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That is what discipleship is, is following in the way of Jesus. That's going where Jesus goes. It's walking where Jesus walks, and it's doing what Jesus does. And he actually tells us how to do it. There's a three-step process. It's like Jesus was a Baptist pastor. He gives us three points, all right? There just needs to be a poem at the end. This is a three-step process. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Deny yourself. My friends, we all have an inclination towards self-protection and self-gratification. We see this with Peter. That's why he says, you're the Christ, and then two seconds later, He's rebuking Jesus, God incarnate, who he just said was the Messiah. It's because there's fear there. There's a self-protection here. There's a self-gratification that we kind of naturally have a bent for. And the call of the Christian is to deny the immediate and live for the eternal. To deny our immediate self, our immediate pull, the immediate draw, either self-gratify or self-protect. This is what it means to deny ourselves. And this is part of following King Jesus is trusting that he's going to be the one that protects us. 
and he's going to be the one that satisfies our needs. We actually, the work, the pressure's off. But there's an element that we are called to deny ourselves. Secondly, take up your cross. So the cross was not what we have today. Back then, Remember, this is 2,000 years ago, right? I have a tattoo of a cross on me. A lot of you have crosses on a necklace or even earrings, right? It's not this happy Christian symbol of hope. 2,000 years ago, it was an instrument of torture and death. And the closest thing, and it's really not even remotely close, but the closest thing I can think about it is an electric chair. That's what it is. Pick up your electric chair. That would be really strange to say. Bring it close to you. Pick up your electric chair and follow me. Like, that's what Jesus is saying. A mechanism of torture and death. Take up your instrument of death. Take up the cross. Embrace it. Bring it close to you and follow me. This is the call of the Christian, is to take up your instrument of death. It's to die to yourself. Again, it it takes the idea of denying yourself even farther, saying put to death. Paul even says put to death the deeds of the flesh, right? Put to death these things that will take us to draw us away. It's to die to ourselves. Die to the need to work, to fight for what we need and accept the fact that Jesus has given it all to us. Take up your cross. And then finally, follow Jesus. And here's a question for us. Where was Jesus going when he picked up his cross? He wasn't going to a field of flowers. He wasn't going to roses and buttercups. He was going to Golgotha. He was going to the place of his execution, the place of his death. And my friends, we are not called to pick up our cross and go to a field of flowers. We are called to pick up our cross and follow Jesus to Golgotha, to follow Jesus to the death of ourselves, to the death of self-seeking, self-gratification, self-protection, to follow Jesus to the death of our selfishness, to follow Jesus to the death of building our own kingdoms, to building our own churches that are fashioned how we want it to be, right? To follow Jesus to the death of our self-gratification, the death of our comfort, our complacency, and maybe even our fighting to do more, work harder, and be better. And then he even says, what does having the whole world mean to you if you lose your truest self? And our truest self is meant to follow Jesus and be united with God again. That is who our truest self is. But it does not just end with death. Because that would be kind of a depressing way to end it. Okay, let's die. See you later. Okay? This is not just following Jesus into death, but it's also following Jesus into resurrection life. Okay? So we don't end there. It's not just what we have to give up. It's also what we gain, which is immeasurably more than what we give up, by the way. We give up having to work and self-gratify and self-protect, and we get rest and peace and joy because Jesus' death is the only way to true life. And so my question for you is, do you want to thrive? Jesus wants you to thrive. Jesus wants you to have your deepest needs fulfilled in him. He wants you to have marriages that are unified and joy-filled. He wants you to have singleness that's a source of contentment and not anguish. He wants you to have churches like Transit Church where you're unified around the gospel and godly leaders that love you and care for you. Jesus wants you to follow him with your life. He wants you to experience his resurrection power in your life today. Do you want that? That sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? That sounds like a good way of living. If you want that, you have to go to Golgotha. You cannot get to the resurrection power of an empty tomb without going through the difficult way of the cross. 
Let me say that again. You cannot get to the resurrection power of an empty tomb unless you go through the difficult way of the cross. Jesus says, come and die. Why? So that you may live. You give up your life to gain it. And this is what it means to be living in the kingdom of Jesus underneath his rule and reign. It's upside down. Do you want newness of life? You go to the Ancient of Days. Do you want ultimate purpose? You submit to God's purpose for your life. Do you want to gain your life? Lose it in Christ. Do you want to live? Then die. Here's the truth, my friends. Our greatest work in this life is to give up. It's to give up our efforts to save ourselves. It's to give up our efforts to try to create and shape the life that we want. This is the hardest thing for the Christian, is to say, I can't do it. Jesus has done it for me. And the invitation of Jesus is to lay our lives down before the author of life so that he can give us his life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to live in the gospel and the power of the gospel. See, when you seek to save your life, you lose it. (laughs) But if you lose your life in Jesus, you'll find it. And so, my friends, as we think about discipleship, we follow Jesus, who willingly embraced death and experienced a universe-transforming resurrection, which means that as we follow him and die to ourselves, we can experience transformation. We can experience hope and joy and peace and satisfaction as we find our truest self hidden in him. And so I told you, I'd bring this into some practical conclusions. So if you're here today, here at Transit Church, and you look over the course of your life, and you have not yet put a stake in the ground to follow King Jesus. You have not made him Lord and King over your life and saying, I'm going to follow him with my life. I've got bad news and good news. The bad news is you're not a Christian, and the good news is you can be, all right? You can put a stake in the ground today. When you commit your life to following Jesus, this is what it means to be a Christian. It's not whether you went to Sunday school or saw Jesus on a flannel graph growing up, right? It means that you've actually made a commitment to follow the life and teachings of Jesus. You've made him Lord and King over your life. And so if you haven't done that yet, I want to invite you to do that today, right now. Pray and say, Jesus, you are Lord over my life. There's a man named uh, Joseph Hart. He lived in the 1700s. He was a London pastor. And at the age of 45, he realized he wasn't a Christian. (laughs) He was a pastor, and he wasn't a Christian. And all of a sudden, he was reading the Bible, and his, his heart just became alive to the gospel, and he became a Christian. And he died at 56, so he had 11 years as a Christian before he died. And during this 11 years, he wrote an entire book of hymns, that, some of which we sing today. And there is this beautiful, just two stanzas of this, uh, this hymn I wanted to read to you. And it says this, as it relates to following Jesus, okay? It says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. I will rise and go to Jesus. He will save me from my sin. By the riches of his merit, there is joy and life in him. My friends, there is joy and there is life in Jesus. And if you wait till you're better, you're never going to come at all. And like I said, the greatest work of the Christian is to give up our self-salvation activity and receive the work of Jesus for us. It's such a better way to live. You sleep better at night. You really do. Because then the pressure's off, guys. You're not responsible for your life anymore. You're not responsible for your happiness, or you don't have to stress and strain. When you follow Jesus and live in the gospel, 
it's such a better way of living. It really is. It's great. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, so let's say you look back over the course of your life, and there has been a moment in time where you've put that stake in the ground, right? You're a follower of Jesus. And I, and I know many of you in here are. My friends, Christ is your life. He's your ultimate good. But it's so easy to forget that, isn't it? It's so easy to look online and be tempted to follow in the way of the world, to follow in the discipleship of the world, to be discipled by the finance bros, to be discipled by the picture-perfect family, the picture-perfect mom that's making the bento boxes, to follow the people that are seeming to be so successful. And then we want that. We crave that, right? It's so easy to be distracted. And I want to first let you know, if, that's, if you maybe self-reflect and maybe you're seeing that you're being discipled in some ways by the world, first I want you to know that God loves you. He's gracious to you. He cares for you. And he wants your best. He doesn't want to slam you. He doesn't want to punish you. Jesus has been punished for you. So there's only, only at the cross of Jesus, there's only thing that's left at the cross of Jesus for you is grace. There's, the wrath is taken care of. The shame is taken care of. The guilt is taken care of. The only thing that's left for you at the cross of Christ is his grace for you. So if you find that maybe there's some ways that you've, you're being discipled by the world, this is not a motivation to hide. This is a motivation to run to him because there's nothing left for you but grace at the cross of Christ. And I think that he gives us some simple practices in order to follow him consistently. So what does that look like? I told you I'd give you a couple of practical ways. How are you following Jesus in your day-to-day life? So the first way is being a community that's following Jesus. If you're not yet a member of Transit Church, join Transit Church. If you would like to move to Clarksville and help us plant a church, you're more than welcome to come. All right? We got a place for you. But this idea of join a local church of people that are following Jesus consistently. This is what's going to help you. We need community around us to remind us that we're following Jesus and not the ways of this world. Because the world has community. The world invites you into it every day. It says, here's life, here's satisfaction. And really what they give you is death and more work. Okay, that's what the world gives you. But Jesus gives you life and satisfaction and rest. So be a part of a community. This means join a community group. Be consistently around other people that are following Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if Transit Church is your home, join this church. Commit to this church. Love these people around you and be a part of a community that's going to help you follow Jesus consistently. It's, it's great. It's hard, but it's great. Next, spend time connecting with God personally. This is abiding with Jesus, John 15. Spending time in the Word. Spending time in prayer. Spending time submitting yourself to following Jesus. Saying, Jesus, you are Lord over my life and you're Lord over my schedule. So I have an expectation of people in our church. I don't know what what Pastor Nick has for you guys. I know for me, it's very simple. Every single person in my church knows the expectation. I say it almost every Sunday. I want you to come to church consistently. I want you to come to a group and read the Bible 15 minutes three times a week. 15 minutes three times a week. That means that's five hooks in your week. Church, group, and then three other times where you're reading the Bible and praying. And 15 minutes three times a week, that's 45 minutes, right? That's about a Netflix episode, right, of like a show on Netflix. They do like 45, 50-minute shows. It's like, you, we can do that. That's attainable. That's simple. And I guarantee you, it's just like, is it Pringles? Once you, once you pop, the fun don't stop, right? It's like Pringles. <laughs> I think it's Pringles, yeah. Once you start it, it's not going to stay 15 minutes three times a week. I guarantee you. It's like, I, if you come to my house, if you come to Clarksville, I'm going to cook you a steak. I'll cook a steak however you like it, but the best way is medium rare, all right? I'm just going to be clear. And if I cook you a steak, it's like I'd give you a steak, 
and you take a bite of it, and then you just leave it. Okay, I'm done. No. You take a bite of a steak that's cooked perfectly. You want more steak, don't you? You pop the Pringles can. You want more Pringles, okay? And this is what happens when you follow Jesus. Start small, 15 minutes, three times a week. Just do that. And it'll take you a month or two to get in that rhythm. It's not, you don't have to go zero to hero, okay? You don't have to go all of a sudden not doing anything to, I'm spending two hours in the morning sweating and laboring and praying at 4 a.m. in the morning, right? No, just start off small, 15 minutes, three times a week. Spend it with Jesus. Be in a group. Come to church. Just do those things. It's real simple, and you will see your life will change. And as a pastor who's been a pastor and a church planner for better part of a decade, I'll tell you, that solves like 90% of people's problems in my church. That's the first thing I say when I'm counseling someone. you got to counsel people still, but like I'm counseling someone, I say, are you reading the Bible consistently in prayer? <laughs> Submitting to Jesus in humility. Are you going to a group? Are you going to church? And typically, one of those things is not there, or most of those things aren't there. And then it's like you start to see people become in alignment. Why? Because you're following Jesus, okay, together as a church family. So be in a community following Jesus. Join this church. Be a part of a group. Spend time connecting with God personally. Start with something simple, small. Then finally, share your table with others. It's not just for you. It's for others, okay? You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to have a seminary degree and read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic to share your gospel and to share the gospel with other people, to share good news about what he's done. You just share your story. You know how to share your story? You know how to share where you came from? and You know how to share if there's a good restaurant you like? I don't need to give you the five-step process on how to share your favorite restaurant. You just share about your favorite restaurant you came up with. It's the same thing as you experience Jesus. It's not just for you, it's for others. So one thing, I know some people, especially in Clarksville, are like, well, I don't know who to go to. Okay, I don't know who to go to and share what Jesus is doing with my life. I don't know too many people that aren't Christians. Or maybe I know people, I don't know any Christians in my life, and maybe this is all you got. And you're like, I don't know how to make that step. So this is what you do. Carve out one night a month. This is what I suggested to somebody in my church, and it seemed to work out for them. Carve out one night a month and say, we're, this is just going to be, we're going to invite somebody over to our house for dinner. So make something simple, pasta, okay, it's easy. Just, and just say, you don't have to have the person yet. You just say, third Sunday night of every month, we're going to have somebody over to our house for dinner. And you pray every single day that God sends you someone to bring over to your house for dinner on the third Sunday night. And guess what? It works. He'll send you somebody. He loves people. Jesus loves people, and he wants you to join him on his mission. And so you just pray, and you will be shocked. It won't take you a couple of days, and you'll be shocked. You pray consistently. Say, we're going to have somebody over to our house. We don't know yet. We're going to have somebody over to our house the third Sunday night. I guarantee you, you're going to have somebody that comes in your life. It's crazy. Um, we just have been praying. We're, Rachel and I, we're going to start, we, we start discipleship groups all over the place. But in our neighborhood, you know, we've led our neighbors on both sides of us to faith, neighbor across the street to faith. Um, but this has been a hard season in my neighborhood, right? Our neighbors who we've led to faith, they kind of rejected Christ. And they got divorced. They're moving out. And they're selling their house. And it just grieves Rachel and I, right? So we're like, maybe we just need to start a, group, a community group so I have a couple of discipleship groups, so does my wife. Like, maybe we just need to start one for our neighborhood, right? That's what I was thinking. It's just maybe we'll open ourselves back up to our neighbors. We've been somewhat hurt by them. You know, they've kind of gossiped about us and tried to start drama. And so, like, maybe we need to kind of lean back in post-COVID a little bit, right? So we've been praying, and it's like, I need another couple in the neighborhood that's like a Christian that loves Jesus, right? I've been praying for that. So I told you, our neighbors uh, who we had led to faith kind of rejected Christ, and they ended up moving. And they sold their house. And I've been in Africa for a month, 
And I come home. I'm literally like, my daughter, I was changing my daughter the second I walked in the house. Rachel's getting off work. I've been gone for a month. And there's this beautiful sunset going on in the back porch, right? So I'm, I literally walked in the door after a month away from, from being in Africa, changed my daughter, walked her outside to look at the sunset. And lo and behold, who do I see over the fence but our new neighbors? And like we wave. I was like, hey, are you my new neighbors? You know, I'm a little a bit of an outgoing guy. So we end up talking and he asked me what I do, and I said, I'm a pastor, and I'm looking at him through the fence. It's like home improvement, like Tim the Toolman Teller, right? Where I'm looking through the slots of the fence to see him. we got a privacy fence, and we're like kind of staring at each other, trying to talk. And all of a sudden, I say I'm a pastor. He asked me what I was doing. I was like, yeah, I was a pastor, and I'm a professor at a Bible college out there. And, and his eyes lit up. I'm like, oh, my gosh, he's from California. It turns out they're Christians. They love Jesus. And they moved to the neighborhood literally two days before I get there. And he, they literally said, we're looking for a church this guy's wife is a nurse. My wife has been a nurse for 10 years. She's a nurse practitioner. We had him over to our house for dinner on Thursday night before I came to Maryland. And it's like, who knows what God's doing? But it's like, we're praying for our neighbors. We said we need a solid Christian couple. And it's like, God might have just moved them right next door to us. And so I just want you guys to know that as you pray, partner with Jesus, carve out some time to share your table with someone. Consistently spend time with the Lord in prayer, and in submission to him, and be a part of a local church and bear weight here. Like, like you got a pastor and leadership that loves you and cares about you. Come underneath, all right? Come underneath of them. Help shoulder the weight of this church, and you're going to find that that keeps you running straight. That keeps you focused on Jesus because you don't have time to argue when there's a mission in front of you, all right? The little things don't matter as much. The coffee in the foyer that might be good or not good one Sunday, right? Doesn't matter as much when you're on mission together as a church family community. So um, here's the deal. When we follow Jesus, when we cherish him, when his life works within us as we submit to his power consistently, when we sacrifice for one another, when we serve, when we care for one another, you'll find that you'll experience the resurrection life of Jesus deeply in your life. And that's what I want for you. That's what I want for Transit Church. And then what you'll find is that this momentary affliction, sufferings or pains or difficulties and struggles will only serve to remind you of the truth of Colossians 3.3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much that you are good, that you are worth it, that you're valuable, that you're, you're worth the energy and effort because you give us your life you give us your power. You give us your resurrection. But help us have the strength and the fortitude to walk the hard road of Golgotha, to pick up our cross, to follow you, to carve out time in our week, to follow you practically as disciples. Help us reject the discipleship of the world and follow you, King Jesus, because you're worth it. So help us, Jesus. Remind us of this. And then as we do this, help us spread this message of life and joy and peace here in the Northern Virginia area. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.